Galatians 4.15, what has happened to all your joy? What has happened to all your joy? Last week's uh, news feed uh, carried the story of, uh, the rather distressing story, of a conservation worker who was said to be slowly turning to stone. Uh, she had contracted a rare and deadly illness while trekking through the jungle uh, to save tigers. Uh, the lady, Rebecca Willers, uh, has been diagnosed with diffuse systemic sclerosis, which is an incurable condition which kills one in ten people within five years. Uh, doctors believe that she contracted the illness in 2015 when bitten by an insect whilst trekking through a national park in Indonesia for the Tiger Conservation and Protection Unit. Uh, she says she doesn't know how long she has left. Uh, she's terrified at how quickly it is spreading. Uh, she's struggling even to brush her teeth because her hands feel like they are made of rock. What an awful predicament to feel that you are turning to stone. Well, in a spiritual sense, the, the church at Galatia might be said to have been turning to stone. Uh, the question which Paul asks of them uh, in verse 15 is a very telling question. Where uh, is your joy? What has happened to all your joy? And it's a question that many Christians would do well to ask themselves. Where is my joy? Why is it I am living uh, a loveless, self-righteous life that is far from the joy that is supposed to mark Christians? Where is the blessedness I knew when first I trusted? The Galatians have regressed in their experience. Uh, Paul reminds them that when he first came to them, when he first preached the gospel, they were open-hearted. They received him and his message of good news with eagerness. They showed love and warmth to him as their preacher. But they have, as it were, fallen under a spell. They have departed from gospel principles and they've embraced an outlook uh, which is killing their joy. Uh, what has happened to all your joy? And the key to understanding what's gone wrong in the Galatian experience and what can go wrong in the experience of Christians is the contrast between sons and slaves. Paul tells us that our Christians are called by God to be and to live as sons. Verse 26 of chapter 3, he says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. That was the, the, the picture we were considering last time when we were thinking of the unconditional acceptance of Christ. We are in, put into Christ by faith. We have his righteousness imputed to us. Go back again to that uh, parable, that, that uh, almost template that we have, the parable of the prodigal son. And... Imagine again the picture of the father uh, placing the robe around the son. The son who is grimy and ragged 
are clothed with the robe of a son, accepted uh, as a son once more. There's joy, there's celebration, uh, there's love at his homecoming. That's the joy of sonship. But remember the story, that joy, that celebration is not shared by all concerned. Uh, There's the elder brother who resents the forgiveness shown to his brother and who complains to the father. All these years, I've slaved for you. That's a telling word, isn't it? Uh, It's the giveaway. I've slaved for you. I've not really been living like a son. I've slaved for you, and I never disobeyed any of your orders. Well, the Galatians had once been living as sons, but now they're living as slaves. Paul uh, reminds him, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you're a son, God has made you also an heir. See, they're not behaving uh, in accordance with their identity. They are sons, but they're behaving like slaves. And they had been slaves, but they'd been freed from that. And what they had been enslaved to, to, Paul says, are the elementary principles. And there's there's an unusual word behind that, this idea of elementary principles. Um, It probably indicates their adherence to Jewish regulations as a means to salvation. In other words, the the outlook of the Pharisee and his law-keeping as a way to acceptance. Not the Old Testament, because the Old Testament is a way of grace, but the distortion of the Old Testament that had come about through the Pharisees. And Jesus had strongly denounced it. And they are returning that to that again. How is it, verse 9, that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you want to be enslaved by them all over again? Now, what Paul's saying about the Galatians would almost be a a description of the elder brother in the parable. Uh, He is, like the Galatians, performance-driven, joyless, and critical. And the parable of the two sons reminds us always that there's more than one way to miss out on Jesus being your saviour. You can kick over the traces. You can uh, abandon uh, any pretense at living an upright life. The rock and roll lifestyle. Uh, the far country with the, the, the prostitutes and so on. And that lifestyle is a very obvious and scandalous lifestyle. But there's the other way, the more insidious and probably within the church more prevalent way of backsliding and that is the way of the elder brother a kind of regression to the slave mentality and when we do that when we begin to to think that uh, we need to earn God our father's acceptance by obeying all his orders and slaving for him we are beginning to think not as sons but as slaves We have regressed into the mindset of slaves. And that, friends, is a sure way of losing our joy. In Ephesians 6, Paul tells 
uh, Christian slaves, actual people who uh, can't help but be slaves. That's what they are. They are in a household where they are simply uh, in the business of being slaves. But he says that they have to be distinctive. Uh, he says they have not to be slavish slaves. They have to be Christian slaves. Uh, they are to work uh, for their master as though uh, Christ and not just their master is watching to please them. They are not to be men pleasers only. They are not to do their work with an eye uh, on whether or not their master is watching them. Christ is their Lord. So, let's think together, first of all, about the character of the slave. What are the characteristics of someone who has slipped back and lost his joy or her joy because they're no longer thinking as a son but as a slave? And then, let's consider the fact that our sonship, our being part of the family, begins at the cross. And then, finally, think about what it is that characterizes the son, the child of God first and most obvious characteristic of someone who's thinking and, and living uh, like a slave is that they're driven by a, a sense of the need to perform. The slave's mindset is, I obey and therefore I'm accepted. I find acceptance through my slavishness, through my obedience. Obedience uh, to the rules, whether they're God's laws or whether they're extra man-made regulations or perhaps society's expectations. And you see that in uh, a host of ways in uh, non-Christian relationships. Victoria Pendleton, the cyclist, wrote in her autobiography of her sense of insecurity and it flowed from uh, her awareness that her, her father was determined uh, to make her the success in cycling that he had never been. By the time she was 15, she was used to cycling 50 miles on a Sunday, whatever the weather, chasing the distant figure of the father who never looked back. And she writes, I had to hang on to Dad. I was sure that if I lost sight of him, I would lose hold of his love. Very much the mindset of the slave, the elder brother. Another very similar uh, confession is from Claire Balding, the, uh, the TV presenter. She's almost on every channel and every sporting program. And she had been uh, a horse rider. And she, again, reveals relationships with her father, which are quite revealing. All her life, she said, had been spent trying to get approval from her father, who was a, a racehorse trainer. She told a friend, I was head girl at school, and I thought, that would surely satisfy him. I won the ladies' racing championship. I thought, that should surely satisfy him. I was president of the Cambridge Union, and I thought, that was surely going to satisfy him. I now present racing on the TV. Do you know what he said? You nod too much. Continually trying to, to please, trying to find acceptance by performance, the mindset of the slave. And the Galatians had slipped back from the grace of God to this slavish mindset uh, because they were embracing a new form of law-keeping. 
Paul tells us that they were observing special days and months and seasons. Now, I don't think that the, the, the weekly observance of the Lord's Day is in Paul's sights here. It's not the fourth commandment he's complaining about, but the fact that they were uh, observing uh, some of the days which belonged to the Jewish ceremonial law, which had been fulfilled so as to be overtaken in Christ. And why on earth were they doing this? Why were they seeking to keep these special observances when they didn't have to? Well, there's something in the mindset of the slave that wants to have something uh, to, to notch up. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Uh, tell me the standard I have to keep, I'll keep it. And the trouble is, we, we never can. And we never can have a, a sense of of being accepted by God because of our rule-keeping. If Martin Luther were here to tell us, he would tell us that because he spent years uh, going on pilgrimages, on uh, uh, abusing his health, on trying to keep all the rules and the regulations that the Roman Catholic Church of the day imposed, and never found peace until he found the grace of Christ. Life becomes laden with anxiety. And many Christians uh, lose their joy because they develop a slave-like mentality. Uh, they might not be performing uh, the commandments in that spirit, but it might be a whole host of other things. Uh, it, can, it could be uh, putting in lots of hours around the church, trying to gain acceptance, or rigidly sticking to uh, our quiet time routine, doing door-to-door -door evangelism, in fact, any number of, of things which are good in themselves, but which can be transformed into a means of pleasing God, winning God's acceptance. One of the telltale signs that we've fallen into this trap, I obey, therefore I'm accepted, is our prayer life. It becomes formal and joyless. It becomes something that we do. It's a performance to please God rather than uh, our living breath, that which we need and cannot do without. So the, the slave is driven by a sense that he has to perform in order to be accepted by God. And another interesting feature of the slave is that the slave is characterized by an angry spirit, by anger. There's a terrifying bitterness, for example, in the elder brother's retort to his father. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, who has wasted your substance with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. Now, when you think about that, and you think about who the father is pointing us to, those are chilling words, are they not? They are frightening words. This son of yours, he cannot even bring himself to call uh, the, the brother, his brother, his elder brother. It's this son of yours. And quite clearly, he is angry and resentful against God 
or against the father in the parable because he feels that he has uh, not been treated as he ought to. And that's characteristic of the, the slave. There is a sense of entitlement. I have done all of this for God and therefore I have rights before God. God owes me. He owes me answer prayers. He owes me a good life. And he owes me eternal life in heaven when I die. And the elder brother in the parable is really aggrieved and therefore really angry because he hasn't got what he thinks he should get, having put in the effort. When someone feels that God owes them because of the effort they've put in to serve him and things don't work out as they think that they should, where they've expected. One of the reactions is that of being angry with God and resentful of God's providence. And again, there are telltale words. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. Why has God not answered my prayers? Why has God allowed my, my life to work out like this after all I've done for him. You see, that's a, a slave's mentality. You only think like that if you think that you have entitlement uh, before God because you've performed in the way that God would want you to perform. And the slave will be very prickly when people criticize him or her. Uh, why, why, would it be, why would it be that we are we find it difficult to take criticism. Well, because my, my worth is based on my performance. My, my worth is based on me being a good person, on being a righteous person. And if somebody uh, is to suggest that I may not be quite as righteous as I think, then the stakes are very high because my acceptance is based on my performance, my goodness, my righteousness. And I don't like it. And the slave will be angry. That's how the Galatians had uh, reacted. They, they had kind of turned on Paul because Paul had, had criticized them. He had shown up their fault. Verse 16, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? So the slave lives by performance in order to obtain acceptance. The slave is angry, uh, can't take criticism. And thirdly, uh, the slave mentality breeds a, a sense of superiority, a hard, competitive spirit. The elder brother uh, is quick to point out that he's superior to the younger brother, and the Galatians now think that they are superior to Paul. Because why? Well, they've joined another group. They're in an elite group. Paul points out that they've been manipulated by people who want to alienate them from him. Those people, he says, are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us, so that you may be zealous for them. That's part of the, the mindset of the slave. The slave, because they're driven by uh, performing, the slave will want to be in uh, a group that he or she regards as being better than the rest a group in which they can take pride and look down on others. 
They are critical and self-righteous. Think of the, the parable of the Pharisee and the, the tax collector in the temple. How the, the, the Pharisee prays uh, basically about himself and, and thanks the Lord that I am not like other men, uh, nor like this tax collector. Given that all these are symptoms of the slave, I wonder if anyone is conscious of these attitudes lurking in their own life. It's possible that uh, if they're there, then like the Galatians, you have regressed from uh, the, the joy that you first had in the gospel. But you know, it's possible if if we look into our hearts and we see evidence of that, it's possible that you're not a Christian at all. And we always have to bear that in mind. Remember that the, the spirit of the slave is essentially the spirit of someone who is avoiding Jesus, a saviour. Rather than receive Jesus and his finished work, they're substituting themselves and their own work. And if, like the elder brother, you believe that God should bless you and help you because you worked hard for him or slaved for him, because you've obeyed him and tried hard to be a good person, let me say this, Jesus may be your helper. Jesus may be your model. Jesus may even be your inspiration. But he's not your saviour. And if that's the case, then... Where we need to go is the cross. We need to go and we need to meet the Lord Jesus at the cross because it's at the cross that all of these notions of slaving and being good enough are put to death. None of us can redeem ourselves. The price is far, far too great for uh, the, the feeble, sin-polluted work of our hands to cover. And the, what the cross says, first of all, it shows to me the depth of my sin. I'm far, far worse than I thought I was. This is the deeply humbling experience of going to the cross. I'm much more wicked than I thought I was before. My sin was so great, it took nothing less than, than the Son of God to come in my place. My sin runs deeper. It's a brute force. It distorts my thinking, warps my best actions. It enters deep into every aspect of my personality. And nothing less than the death of the sinless Son of God, a satisfaction of eternal worth, would suffice to cover that. I am more wicked than I thought. And I come to the cross and I'm disabused of all idea that I could be good enough. What a foolish thought. But at the cross, we also discover that I'm more loved than I ever dared hope for. Because with this discovery of the depth of sin, I discover the, the height of grace. God the Father was willing to cover that hideous, hideous brute force uh, at work in my life. All the... the, the, the uh, the stain and filth and stench of sin has been dealt with. If I will only take him at his word, he will receive me. And he has provided for me not a, an amateurish, do-it-yourself righteousness, but a divine one. 
which is complete in every part. And friends, that is my security. And that is your security if you're a believer. That is why our, we may never have to, 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 to vacillate in our, our sense of being fully accepted by God because our acceptance rests on the finished work of Jesus. It is his blood and righteousness that is our beauty, our holy dress. We are accepted on the basis of the goodness of Jesus enfolding us. And that's all I need. Christ is the only righteousness I need. So we come to the cross. If we're thinking like a slave, we come to the cross. And that's where you need to come. This morning, if you are not a child of God, you need to come to the cross. And you need to know, lastly, the joy of the Father's love. Which is the mindset of the son, the mindset of the daughter. Everything, you see, now changes. I'm no longer, I'm no longer a slave. I'm no longer driven by the, the, the idea that I obey, therefore I accept, I'm accepted. Everything has been turned around. Now, I am accepted. Therefore I obey. See that the huge world of difference, the same words, just kind of turned around, but it's a world of difference. The, the change in output could not be more complete. To obey the Father because you know that you're accepted and loved is an altogether different mindset from the mindset of the slave. We're no longer anxiously regarding our efforts to see how impressive they are. Instead, our gaze is on Christ. Uh, Paul has this lovely uh, expression in verse 9. Uh, he says, Now that you know God, or rather are known by God. And I think that's lovely because it, it tells me that God, uh, God knows me completely. What a thought. He knows me, he knows all my failings and just how pathetic I am and and yet he loves me. And I'm absolutely secure in that love. He's never going to let me go. Even although he knows all about me. And not only so, but scripture takes us further. It, it tells us to, to believe that he is actually delighted in us. And we have, to get, we have to get into that this morning. He is delighted in us. How can that be? Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In the beloved. And that's a beautiful phrase, isn't it? Because Paul's saying that all we have is because we are in the beloved. In the beloved. We are in Christ, and therefore beloved. And therefore, we work that out, and, and we, we see that when God declares his love for Jesus, 
as he does beautifully at the baptism in the Jordan and in the transfiguration and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. What God says of Jesus is that of us. We are accepted in the beloved. And because we are children of the living God, we can appropriate all the, the expressions of delight that we have throughout the Bible, including uh, one of the wonderful ones from Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord, your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quieten you with his love. It's a striking picture, isn't it? When you think about it, it's the picture of a warrior and a mother. Picture, the maternal picture of the mother quietening her child, rejoicing with singing. That, friends, is the delight that God takes in his children. That's the transforming understanding of our relationship with God. As we dig deeper into that, we learn more and more to think as sons and daughters and not as slaves, no longer seeking to prize from uh, a distant God acceptance and love, but rejoicing in the knowledge that we are accepted in the beloved. And because this God who knows us is the Father who is totally committed to us, there are so many practical implications. But one of these is that I'm no longer afraid of the criticism of others. If the criticism is untrue, then who cares? If the criticism is true, well, it's only scratching the surface. <laughs> if they knew more, they would know how much worse. Because that's what the cross does. It, it, it brings me face to face with the depth, the reality of sin. Our appreciation of the architecture of sin in our lives is causing us to be more and more humbled before God. We're, we're much worse than our critics want to make us. That, strangely, is liberating. Nothing can jeopardize our position in God's love. And, and therefore, not only are we immune to criticism, but we are also emboldened to repent. In fact, we can be leaders in repenting of sin. Uh, we would be slow to repent were we to think that our acceptance was based upon being good enough or upon what people thought of us. But if I know that I am uh, merely a righteous sinner, then I can be candid about failure. We don't need to be thought of as perfect. We do, on the other hand, want to be known as someone who trusts completely in the righteousness of the Son. And just as criticism can't destroy us, neither can ill health or misfortune create within us a, a spirit of bitterness. We've long ago left behind the, the slave's attitude, I deserve better. No longer think like that. Instead, we rest content in the good providence of God, knowing that my Heavenly Father will not withhold from me what is good, nor will he bestow upon me what is for my heart. He loves me too much to do that. 
And in contrast to the competitive, critical spirit of the slave, the son is freed up now to see the best in others. Including others who are not in our camp, our tribe, our group. They are not competitors. They don't need to be seen in a bad light so I can be seen in a better light because I'm not resting on my righteousness. I don't need to be better nor in a better group than others. Because my Heavenly Father loves me. And that's enough. It suffices. Is that enough for you this morning? Absolutely enough. Shall we bow in prayer? Shall we ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts? To ask us if we are living as children of God or as slaves? Father, we give thanks for the righteousness of Christ and for your acceptance of us in him. Lord, lead us always to the cross that we might find there all that we need. In Jesus' name, amen. Close singing Psalm 16. Psalm 16, which is uh, speaking about the psalmist's delight in the, the lot that God has given him, uh, resting secure in the allocation of land in Israel. We are resting secure in God's portion in our lives. Oh Lord, you are to me my cup and portion, sure, the share that is assigned to me, you guard and keep secure.